Hello and welcome to the Regen Agri podcast, the go-to place to hear about everything regenerative agriculture. Regen Agri is an initiative supporting farms, agribusinesses and the supply chain in their transition to regenerative approaches. We do this globally with the aim of securing the health of the land and the wealth of those who live on it. For more information about our initiative and to find out how we can help with your regenerative journey, visit regenagri.org. I'm your host, Harry Farnsworth, and once again, I'm excited to bring you the latest developments from the global phenomenon that is regenerative agriculture. I'm joined today by Ivan de Clay, a regenerative land management consultant and conservationist on the NEP estate in West Sussex. The 3,500-acre estate was previously intensely farmed, but has now been dedicated to a pioneering rewilding project. Letting ecological processes take the lead has transformed the landscape to one in which the sound of crickets can make it feel more akin to the African bush than the English countryside. Ivan works on rewilding and natural capital opportunities at NEP and is currently leading on the Wheeled to Waves nature corridor from Ashdown Forest to the Glimping Gap. As part of this work, Ivan facilitates the Upper Adder Farmers Group, which is made up of a cluster of farms in the Low Wheeled who are adopting more regenerative and wildlife-friendly farming systems. We will be delving into how regenerative farming and rewilding can work together to unlock natural capital. Welcome, Ivan, and thank you for joining me today. Oh, it's great to speak to you, Harry. Thanks for asking me to join the podcast. It's a really great topic. You know, it is very much in the crosshairs as, in terms of being a you know, really current topic alongside regenerative agriculture as well. And obviously, NEP has become uh, the forefront and the poster boy or poster girl for for this for these kinds of projects. But before we go in into NEP and your work there and what you've been doing, it'd be great to get a bit of background to yourself, Ivan, how you have got yourself to NEP. Yeah, so well, I took a kind of sideways route into nature conservation, wildlife conservation, which is I, I guess I describe myself as a conservationist because it's general enough to cover all the random things, <laughs> random things that I do. But I did an undergrad in art, an arts degree and no scientific background, so spent the first sort of two three years of my career working pretty much for free in Africa and India, um, trying to get stuck into conservation projects where they needed good practical skills but didn't require a zoology degree to get me on the on the ground so I kind of cut my teeth in Kenya and in India uh, central India Kana National Park and then during one of my off seasons there I think in 2015 I had six months of monsoon in India so I came back to the UK and I wrote a letter out of the blue to the boroughs and Jason the estate manager saying do you need someone who can work on farms knows how to carve a calf uh, can put a fence post in but also loves nature and works in nature conservation and they did so I spent a summer here back then but on the kind of farm you call it the farm team you know working with the livestock working you know just estate maintenance digging out cattle grids and then I went uh, back overseas I worked in South Sudan for Fauna and Flora International for a year trying to get their conservation project back up and running there after the civil war and then when I came back finally conceded and did a master's in conservation science at imperial uh, three years ago I guess uh, and I did my master's project back here at NEP and then Jason had me working before I'd, I'd even started collecting my data so <laughs> as soon as my, my feet touched the ground Jason realized or hopefully realized I was useful so by the time I'd finished that project I was then offered the job full time to start the uh, the cluster and to help Penny, my, the ecologist and person who runs the safari business here, help her out. And so my role has built from that point to now include natural capital, landscape scale connectivity, um, consultancy. I do a lot of work advising landowners on new rewilding projects and helping them visualize and take the first few steps towards it. And so, yeah, I've now got a very varied role, which is great fun but kind of jumping around from thing to thing all the time. Yeah, I mean, it must have been a bit of a, a shift because in those early days in those projects you're, you were talking about in uh, India and Africa, you probably, the scale of those projects must have been quite considerable compared to, I mean, NEP is still very big for it, for the UK, but... Yeah, be... very much so. I mean, I, I guess the key, I, I've been doing some work in, you know, farm work 
mustering in the Australian outback on some of those off seasons as well, where the scale again is just sort of mind boggling. <laughs> you just can't can't believe the size difference. And then you get back to NEP, which is three and a half thousand acres or a thousand acres down in this really wild southern bit. And it feels very small, but it also feels really very hopeful or felt, and it still does. But when I made the change from you know rhinos in in Kenya and tigers in India, where you're really trying your hardest to conserve what we have left to protect the very, very vulnerable things. And then coming here and trying to encourage life to come back rather than protecting what we have left was a, was a complete mindset shift and a really exciting one because in conservation, and it, you know, it's, I can't remember that buzzword that it's now called, but you know, climate catastrophe fatigue or climate fatigue, where everyone's so tired of the bad news. What NEP gave me six years ago, the first time I came, was this amazing buzz that there was actually opportunities for change and to, to, to deliver great things. And it's the same now with regenerative ag. Everyone's just so excited because it's like a groundswell. I saw you there, actually, Harry. The atmosphere is so hopeful and so positive, and it's the same mm. rewilding. And it's this potential for regeneration and rewilding and the fact that we're not quite as doomed as we might have thought we were if, <laughs> if yeah. we follow some of these these things that obviously excite us. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, cause I, I, when I first read uh, Isabel Tree's book, Rewilding, obviously about the journey at NEP, and when I first discovered it, I was, you know, I was blown away. I thought it was mm. incredible. And then the more I sort of, uh, started to dive into it. I went to a few talks. I remember, I remember going to one at Bath with a guy who's now running UK Wilding, or I can't remember the name of the organisation. Rewilding Britain. Probably. Rewilding Britain, yeah. yeah. And uh, there was sort of quite a lot of people there who really, really didn't like rewilding and weren't keen on this movement. Uh, and we were just saying just before we came on that the scope has now shifted slightly and it seems more encouraged and more normal. But I mean, when you were first at NEP six years ago, you must have seen a bit of animosity to what you guys are trying to achieve there. Definitely. And that was definitely, and still is sometimes the case, but it's definitely the case in the local landscape and the kind of national landscape. And the, and the, the conflict comes, I think, from this question of, of food security. You know, the main objection to rewilding tends to come, is, you know, how are we going to feed the country? How are we going to feed the world? And we should talk about that in, well, however long we're, we're chatting today. But I don't think anyone, whether it's Rewild in Britain or the Burrells or me or anyone is advocating to rewild everything. Uh, maybe there are some people who, who advocate that, but they're not the community that we're a part of. It's about using rewilding and process-led systems in sort of big, high-impact area or marginal land and then shifting productive land into regenerative systems so we can feed ourselves but also we do need wild spaces whether that's one percent or five percent or thirty percent or whatever the prime minister said yesterday mm. um it's important to recognize that we need to feed ourselves but it's also important to recognize that we need wild exclusively nature-led places too mm. and it's that combination and I guess that's why we're speaking today. It's that combination of how they work next to each other that can be so exciting to deliver both food yeah. and biodiversity. Um, but in terms, so yeah, and that, that's the first response. And the other conflict, and I work with 37 farmers, and I say farmers because they're farmers, they're producing food to feed their families to because to run their businesses, they're, they're food producers, commodity producers in the upper Ada catchment here where we are as part of a farm cluster. So I'm a facilitator for Natural England funded facilitation from farm cl cluster. And I think a lot of those guys early on and up until maybe the cluster started, which is helping to kind of help with communication ultimately, a lot of people were saying, oh, you should be farming like the burrows are. Why aren't you farming? Why aren't you farming like they do at NEP? You know, you should farm like they do in Isabella Trees, but wilding. And the the reaction to that is well they're not farming <laughs> and the answer to yeah. that reaction is yes you're right they're not farming and as soon as you rephrase nep as a nature project or a nature conservation project i think a lot of farmers are more willing to to see it as a totally different land use system they go okay it's interesting yeah they do produce some meat but 
75 tons of live weight a year, very low production, very low stocking densities. And it's just a byproduct of the nature. And what the government or what the taxpayer is, you know, funded through stewardship here is for biodiversity. And that's what it's so been, been so brilliant for. It's not about the production. Yeah. You know, maybe we should go back two steps and maybe start with your your definition of rewilding and what is the difference potentially between rewilding, as you were just saying about net there, the sort of, you know, the purposes around biodiversity and the habitat and the meat's a byproduct. And then how we have now started to incorporate rewilding into farms. Mm, good point. I mean, I think rewilding the definition that NEP uses and that comes from restoration ecology, ecology and Franz Vera, this Dutch ecologist who's sort of grazing ecology, is long-term minimum intervention process-led area. So it's not, it's not exactly catchy, but it's about, uh, you know, you're, you're planning for a long time. It's process-led, so it's all about natural processes, um, not targets. And it's minimum intervention. So you're not managing as, as far as possible, depending on your size. So the main management intervention at NEP is obviously culling because we don't have any predators. But you're not going out and micromanaging habitats to deliver certain outcomes. And that is the, when I use the word rewilding, that's basically the definition behind it. And that's the same as any definition associated with NEP and these big process-led systems. So large herds of roaming herbivores, essentially. But what has been happening since Izzy's book and in the last couple of years when, you know, the general public ultimately have been so worried about or getting more and more worried about biodiversity, they've started using, and it's through the media, it's through everyone, using the word rewilding for ultimately meaning making things more wild or making things better for nature. And I can only see that as a positive, but it is creating some confusion over what it actually means so i've started just referring to nep as process-led process-led natural systems rather than using the word rewilding because rewilding can mean no mo may letting your verges grow out or putting a bug hotel in the garden or doing you know a little corner of scrub at the edge of your arable field or or whatever the case may be but that's not the kind of process-led definition that we use here so in the farmed environment I personally would probably call it space for nature or regenerative farming, ultimately, or agroecological farming, because you could loop in so much under those definitions. But it's the same with regenerative farming. The definition changes, well, not definition, but the way people use it changes every week. I don't yeah. know if it, yeah. No, I think I'd agree with that it, it can change from climate to climate to to farm to farm to, to, to the country you're in, but also what's appropriate for, for that farm. But with this corridor, um, maybe you could expand on it a bit on, on how this is going to work. Is this going to be an interlinked uh, areas of land that's been set aside for wildlife or just farms which are incorporating the whole sort of ethos of regenerative, rewilding, agroecology that are linked together? Or is it a dedicated piece of land? I think it's going to be both. Originally, it was it was going to be a commitment from various landowners to basically do the right thing. It was very loosely termed and still is um, because it's still in its conceptual stage as we look for funding. But the regenerative, the movement to regenerative farming will be hopefully a buffer and sort of permeable buffer to a connected corridor for nature. And the reason for that partly is to make it investable uh, as a concept so whether it's natural england or santander or GlaxoSmithKline or whoever is going to be paying or investing in biodiversity delivery i didn't feel that there was going to be enough of a catch to invest in a group of people changing their systems because that's what the farmer clusters are that's what that kind of second tier of elms looks like and what i thought we could do is if you have a, a corridor a linear corridor of varying habitats 50 miles long whether it's 100 meters wide a kilometer wide or 10 meters wide over a, a little culvert or under a road or something like that that concept is much more easy to visualize and to fund especially if you're investing in biodiversity and then you can layer carbon etc on top of that mm. but to be part of that corridor the landowner who will be paid ultimately will be like an agri-environment scheme. They'll be paid to contribute that piece of land to the corridor to help connect up 
you know the whole landscape hopefully they will then buy into the whole idea of permeability and building connectivity into the farm landscape as well so hedgerows scrubby corners but that bit of it will probably be supported by elms or other mechanisms does that make sense i don't, I don't yeah. know i'm just um, wondering if it's if the if the way ra- the way around it's going to work is they're going to start thinking about sort of regenerative farming practices which will lead to the area of being maybe building up to being an area being left for wildlife or if it's that area of wildlife will then encourage them that actually having all these beneficiary insects or, or animals on on the farm will then lead into more regenerative practices well i actually feel some of the regenerative farmers in the kind of line of the imagined corridor at the moment i'm sort of approaching various people saying look would you be interested in being in this corridor if i can find an appropriate payment for that slither of your farm a lot of a lot of the farmers who are already pioneering and doing really interesting things are going oh yeah well we would be interested but we're doing some awesome stuff already (laughs) so they're kind of like well we're already you know we are a corridor and i would agree with them they are but to try and I, I'm just I'm just, I'm thinking about it about how to actually get investors in mm. and taking whether it's a slither or a big area out of kind of key production and putting it into key nature, which will have a kind of secondary production value, is more investable than supporting people to continue as they are, although they should be supported to continue as they are through the government as well. So I don't I don't know which way around it'll it'll go. With Regenerate, we have conversations like this with people who are, or companies that are looking to offset or invest. And, uh, you know, they're not always completely sure how to do it. And it's the reason that we collect some of the data points that we do to try and build a picture of the sort of actual demonstrative effect that these practices are having. So, I mean, how do you think you will, how are you going to approach tracking the biodiversity uh, impact uh, to feed back into these investment? portfolios or investment uh, groups because the biodiversity net gain metric hasn't always been the most popular i mean i don't know what your thoughts mm. are on that yeah I, well you're right to say i i think they continue hopefully defra are going to continue to make it better or get rid of some of the major major flaws associated with the metric but at the moment in nature conservation at least but also in regenerative farming, as far as I understand it, and this is where you're positioning yourselves, I think, is that you have investors on one side, whether it's elms or corporate or anyone, ultimately they're no longer going to, well, I no longer refer to them as funders because they're investing in the public good or they're investing in the biodiversity. So I've stopped calling them funders because it doesn't feel for free anymore. It's an investment. (laughs) That's just my terminology. So you've got them on one side and what they want certainly the call for landscape recovery pilots and stuff like that. What they want is farmers or landowners to approach them with an oven-ready deal and oven-ready um, uh, project. <laughs> I, I, had a, I had a picture of Boris. Yeah, I was going to say, have you, been, have you been watching, re-watching Boris's speeches or something? No, I, I, I used him as a, a goofy example of, oven ready deals and oven ready, <laughs> oven ready projects because it is true i think that the, the the funders or the investors rather they want oven ready projects so they want a group of farmers to say look we can develop deliver x and you need to pay us x to do it and meanwhile you've got the farmers on the other side who are waiting for the funders to approach them and saying look we can pay you 650 pounds a hectare to cover crop through the winter or we can pay you 650 pounds a hectare to over 30 years to deliver scrubland or high value nature habitat but there's a sort of dead space in the middle which is where hopefully someone like me with this corridor can come in try and work out exactly what we can deliver and then be the bridge point between the investor and the the landowners because it's very difficult to come up with a project plan if you're a farmer because it's all it's a it's a brand new landscape the whole (laughs) the nature public good delivery landscape if you've been a commodity producer all your life Mm. and suddenly you're a service provider it's it's a whole new way of thinking and so in terms of measuring it will be difficult but i I, we're at net we're working on with a range of partners 
working on a couple of different things. One would be a biodiversity credit and one is a kind of wild carbon credit. So carbon that comes from different types of habitat, not just from plantations and peatland at the moment, mm. or woodland plantations, because there the, there's some big gaps in the market as things stand, because measuring biodiversity, the only thing we've got is a defrometric and it doesn't work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so what, what we're trying to do, and it's we're not leading on it, but we're a partner in this idea around a biodiversity credit. And there are other people in this space as well. I'm sure there are going to be lots of these ideas in the next few years that hit the market. Mm but is is basically measuring more than just habitats, measuring a range of different metrics and then trading in the percentage increase in those kind of biodiversity metrics ultimately. But I, I had a I had a meeting with, don't want to ramble, but I had a meeting with uh, Wakehurst Place, which are kind of on the route of the corridor to see if they'd be interested. They're very interested and they're obviously, it's a Kew Gardens offshoot if you, if, for anyone listening who didn't know that, there's the kind of Kew Gardens rural project. They have the Millennium Seed Bank there. So there's an army of scientists and they ask how are you going to measure connectivity? How are you going to, mm. if you're going to do a corridor, how are you going to actually show that you're going to have connectivity between these places, especially because it's such a big landscape and it's going to take 30, 50 years to deliver this corridor properly, I would have thought. And I didn't know the answer to that, but maybe through a mix of surveys and remote sensing and all sorts of new technologies would be looking for partners and people to to join that join that journey really um because mm. it's well, gonna it, it'd be difficult to do probably yeah but, you know very difficult to do but you know it's something that we come we come up against sometimes is you know i understand why sort of larger companies or people with large esg commitments want to make sure they aren't getting into something which could potentially be greenwashing or come out as not actually being that beneficial in a, year, in a few mm-hmm. years time but if you're constantly letting perfection be whatever that saying is perfection then it's good yeah. good it's it's impossible and biodiversity is very hard to track and, and manage and you, you can infer things from certain techniques or leaving a certain amount of land but you need to start somewhere and so is that a good enough motive for what you're calling these investors now not funders to get involved yeah i think so i think so i had some pretty and that what rewilding has done as a movement is because it's not target led and that everything we've had here at net for example all the turtle doves and the nightingales and the purple emperors and the tens of thousands of records all of that has been a kind of emergent result from the system that we couldn't have predicted what it's what it's led to hopefully is sort of people realizing they have to be a bit more open-minded about systems like these because you can't promise x amount of species or x type of species by a certain point time point in time because it's process driven and so what you're hoping for really are investors who are ready to take that kind of initial step with you to go okay well we don't know quite exactly what we're delivering but there's going to be science every step of the way. You're a trusted partner. We, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think external accreditation, whether it's a biodiversity credit or a carbon credit, will also always be important to the private sector because I don't think I think you know that's obviously where where we come in with third party, you know, verification and certification of these practices because these companies can't uh, risk sort of investing in things where there isn't an independent check to ensure. It's happening, especially if you're then looking into countries where there's potentially high levels of fraud or corruption, and they've got to be have their wits about them. Mm. And it's the same with biodiversity. I think ultimately it will end up being the same with biodiversity. There will be have to be some sort of assurance or some kind of third party certification that you know. Let let's say next year the government announced that every company in Britain needs to get to net environmental zero rather than net carbon zero. And they had to offset every bit of you know bad biodiversity practice or biodiversity impact in their supply chain. They're all going to need credits to buy probably. So and that's it will be an important bit of the market. We just want to make sure that it works rather than using the defrometric, for example, which currently I think will lead to lots of tiny little pockets of high nature value in and around developments. Um, mm. which will do nothing for connectivity or proper 
biodiversity recovery on like a regenerative farm or a rewilding project. Yeah. And maybe just for clarity of everyone who's listening, uh, go into a little bit of why connectivity is also important in these projects, why these standalone isolation bits are obviously great, but there needs to be a level of connectivity. Well, climate change resilience is one thing. So species need to be able to move through the landscape. And I'm not an ecologist, so you have to forgive my kind of loose descriptions here. But in the Lawton report, in John Lawton's report, which is bigger, better, more, and joined up, is that final piece. So this is all about nature, the nature recovery. Bigger was we need bigger sites because they're more resilient better was better managed or you know better process led systems because a lot of it is in poor quality in britain more speaks for itself and then the joined up bit there are quite a few studies i mean nature corridors have had a lot of kind of traction in the us and around the world especially for kind of fragmented populations in india like tigers they have corridors between the tiger reserves where these with these tiny genetic pools of species that are left behind but it's no different in our system you know birds and insects can fly but bats need flight lines over woodlands they need you know um everything needs movement in the lawton report they did a a a study or some of the science behind the report was a study on moss on rocky outcrop and the corridors between those blocks of moss and how resilient they are so you had those, you know, you know those nice damp patches of moss you get on a rock. When there's an entire community connected by little corridors of moss, they're a completely resilient ecosystem. And then when they started taking out the adjoining corridors, you saw the blocks of moss shrinking in on themselves and slowly retreating. Even if the conditions were perfect for that type of moss, it was the connectivity between them that built the resilience in the system. And that science and that thinking is extrapolated up to an entire landscape. And you think about these little ecosystems that just need that permeability and whether they're traveling along hedgerows and woodlands or cover crops or wild bird mixes along the edge of farms from nature, high nature area to high nature area, or they're stopping in those places. Um, what they need is that permeability because otherwise you'll have these little islands of purple emperors or these little islands of certain species that will just not be able to move across the landscape. And it's like, you know, a bat will get to the edge of a massive arable field and it won't make the crossing. But the same as a butterfly when it comes across a unmanaged conifer plantation, that's a wall to it as well. So it's not just about empty arable fields, but it's different habitats can be completely un- impermeable to various species. And so what you're looking for is mosaic habitats contiguously across the landscape. Well, that's the idea behind it. But I have to refer all your listeners to the Lawton report where they can read mm. that and get a lot more crystal yeah. clear info. <laughs> no, no, it's fascinating. But if I, you know, put slight devil's advocate on for a minute and I'm listening to this as a as a producer, as a farmer, and I'm where and I'm looking at sort of X, Y axes of investment in wildlife and then my farm profitability plummeting mm. down off the other end. Where's this, you know, where is the sweet spot in the middle? How much how much area or how much land or should farms so, look to incorporate or is that me or is that thinking of it in the wrong way it should be a complete blend not i well i would definitely be blended you know land sharing rather than land sparing i don't know if you're aware but there's a regenerative farm at nep now that russ carrington from the pasture for life association is the man well used to be at the pasture for life russ is managing um and russ started in january so and it's all livestock so NEP is ex-arable, very heavy ground, very good for growing grass and trees. So that's what Russ will basically be doing. It'll be beef and then maybe in due course poultry and a micro dairy, but starting with beef using mob grazing, lots of interesting modern tech associated with Regen Ag, plus some of the, you know, all the, all the thinking that all of your listeners will be familiar with. And it's interesting watching how he's thinking about connectivity, because when you've got Charlie Burrell as your boss saying, well, it's all about, it's going to be about nature, but it's going to be about food production as well. Uh, you're thinking about hedgerows and water, ultimately, and then corners and how you can blend in those bits. And then when you're looking in field, you're thinking about diversity as, you know, multi-species 
lays or whether if you're not using lays how to build diversity in the sward as it is um, and that's the blended way of thinking which is in turn good for your livestock but if you're an intensive cereals producer or crop producer well it essentially it's everything to do with regenerative agriculture is building permeability into the farm sister any, anyway or agroecology so i'm very much for blending i don't think you need to worry you know, you're, you're approaching your land just with a different hat on. You know, Charlie and Izzy, the bosses of NEP or other rewilding projects, they're thinking oh, we're focusing on the biodiversity crisis. A regenerative farmer is going, I'm focusing on the fact that we have been destroying our countryside, trying to feed ourselves. Let's try and restore the countryside whilst feeding ourselves. This is a very slightly diff- different way of thinking, but ultimately with the same goals, which is not a sustainable landscape but a regenerating better landscape and i suppose that draws quite nicely into the other argument which will come from that which is food security and food sovereignty Mm. and Mm. how how much land will it take to stop well we're not food secure now but to the for the level of food security people perhaps perceive we have because the amount of farmland they they see around them when they go into the countryside you know how much of that would it take to dramatically drop off our you know our barley uh stores or you know wheat stores that's really a question for you though harry <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. i would uh, yeah i don't as i said at the beginning it's not about rewilding everything but it is about looking at the marginal land which isn't producing very much anyway or is only producing something because of the inputs that it's getting or you know and it's about rethinking those bits and we'll also have to think about the kind of market disruption that's coming through the you know lab built stuff and the intensification in greenhouses and all the rest of the stuff that's happening in the food space is going to change the countryside too and fly farming and all these you know insect farming and all sorts of stuff that i don't really know know about but Mm -hmm. all of that is going to be part of our future in this sort of agricultural revolution that we're at the start of but and you know and that argument probably gets leveled at regenerative farming as well if you're seeing a drop in yields can we really afford that drop in yields if we've got to feed ourselves and the answer is we probably can if we think about how to use our land best um, rather than growing tons and tons of feed crops and actually better use the grass in a different way you know there are yeah, this is what our entire sort of sector are looking at now. I define yeah. sector as a kind of regenerative movement, I suppose. I mean, to loop that into the work you're doing uh, with the ADA, I keep saying it wrong. Ado, it's ADA. It's ADA. ADA. Yeah. ADA. I, I did. I thought it was going to be quite sounding a bit pretentious, so I read it as adieu to begin with. <laughs> oh, it's so, <laughs> very nice. Huh? <laughs> yeah, it sounds a bit French with the upper ADA uh, group. I mean, are they? being are you sort of encouraging them to incorporate livestock or are they so working it, together to maybe find a shepherd they can use to, to graze their land instead of buying their own sheep or is it very collective yeah, so the, the cluster is it's not as collective as i wish it was unfortunately we were hampered quite badly by covid because the way the facilitation fund works is it's basically the rpa and natural england paying for events that's what the money is for. It's for my time to set up group learning events. So we had, I don't know if you know, Simon Cowell, the farmer in Essex, the regenerative farm, well, yeah. you know, Soil Health Farmer of the Year from a few years ago, made, done some amazing work for his soils. So that was one of our events. Simon came down, presented on, you know, it's very heavy clay up there, very heavy clay down here. So relevant to the arable farmers down here. And it's more about helping communication across the landscape and getting some most of the farmers are conventional farmers mixed farms mostly arable bit of livestock you know not so many dairies left maybe two or three dairies in the group and everyone's doing lots of different great things on their farms already and my job if we'd had more time and hadn't had to cancel our events would have been about and still is and we're, we're doing good things but about everyone thinking about how to do stuff collectively, but they're they're slightly slower burn than maybe this corridor will be because the funding associated Mm -hmm. with it is, I basically just don't have time. I'm not paid for for going out and actually delivering 
nature conservation works on the ground or helping these guys change system. It's about giving them access to the information and letting them make their, their own minds up. But you, you can feel you can feel a change in the mindset of the farmers. And it's not, I doubt it's because of me. I mean, maybe it's because of the group in, uh, in part, but it's also because of the, the change that's happening from above, you know, with Elms and BPS going. And mm. so it's partly financially driven. It's partly driven by their children coming home from school and saying, you know, haven't we got to do something about this or that? And, you know, so, so there's this whole shift. And if the cluster or me as a facilitator can be there to just help provide access to information and that yeah. that's where the value is yes i think for sure you know we touched on a bit of peer-to-peer stuff earlier and how how fantastic those events can be for people learning from like-minded people but you know i'm taking a few notes as we as we're speaking and something i keep writing down is funding because uh, mm. it's obviously a huge part of this whole process but i wondered if, if as a thought exercise if we were you know thinking of a sort of conventional farm mid-england doesn't have access to all this funding doesn't isn't in any of these trials or land stewardship what can be done with limited funding i mean if we had to strip back to sort of what can i do on the basics i have on my farm already to help encourage nature and start working on my own uh, connected corridor across my farm so so you again thinking about nature in the farm con- context so well i guess the first well i guess that will be the space for elms um at you know in terms of funding you know, it's stewardship is available now but in very basic terms if you're in the in the midlands or not you know wherever and you're you're not next to any kind of glamorous pot of funding elms should still be able to cater for people to move into a, a more connected nature friendly farm farm system I and mean, whether we're skeptical about it or not and how elms will end up being i don't know i sometimes feel really encouraged by listening to what the various teams at defra you know giving webinars on and sometimes feel really pessimistic so i kind of change <laughs> day to day but uh, i don't know it will be about forecoming in foregone income as well so if you're taking land out of production how can you add that value elsewhere and i guess that that value will come from the nature itself but that's still difficult to you put a figure on but that you know that's if you're thinking about nature corridor through your farm and you know george young up in um essex as well farming george he's he is doing exactly that um and i think he's doing it because he can he can see the value it'll bring his farm system i don't know if he's being paid to do it yet but it shouldn't be too far away for the these pots of funding to actually be more easy to access because at the moment it's people like me or whoever going out kind of sniffing around trying to get (laughs) some money from somewhere and you know the corridor is just an idea and the cluster isn't funded to do any proper work so the funding isn't there yet but as we all keep talking it is coming and you know a year ago if we'd had this conversation we'd say net game was a kind of far off concept and although it might not be working there are people now making deals with developers and think you know things mm. are being you know land managers are being paid to deliver stuff um mm. not just from the government and soon enough the corporate corporate will enter that space as well or they're entering it as we speak but you know the doddington hall which is a rewilding project up in lincolnshire they're working on a corridor concept in their landscape. There are lots of, you know, there are corridor projects up in the uplands. Um, mm. So I don't think it's, you have to be at this moment, you have to be very proactive, I think, to go and find funding. You, it's that dead space I was talking about earlier yeah. where you, you've got landowners not knowing what to do on one side and investors not knowing where to invest on the other. And that dead space is horrible because it means that these deals aren't happening yet. So, the landowners who are calling the developers saying oh, I can do something or the landowners who are making these corridor ideas, they're probably the ones who find funding right now because they're the kind of market leaders, I guess, or front runners. I can't remember. There's a much better kind of trendy corporate word for that term somewhere. <laughs> but <laughs> And then I guess in the next few years when Elms levels out and some of these ideas become a bit more mainstream, it'll be, it'll be easier for 
people who've been you know focusing on their businesses as they are or whatever you know there's so so many reasons for people not to be able or interested in taking that kind of risky step forward because who on earth do you call and how do you get it started it's such a brand new space (laughs) that was that was going to be my question to you actually if i didn't have an ivan if i uh didn't you know if you're uh skills i've got no funding for anyone (laughs) No, if if i didn't have your sort of your guidance you working with that cluster you they they, you know you can help me facilitate it yes it's through funding but if i if i'm a farmer listening to this and i don't i don't know the equivalent of you in my area where's a good place to look or start looking for this information well i think there are clusters around the country so the, the the cluster idea if you're not part of a cluster, you'll probably be in a local, you know, the farmer will be near one. And they're all listed, I think, on the Game Wildlife Conservation Trust website. And then they're free to join. There's no commitment for the landowner, which at the beginning of this cluster was so great because I'd go and see all these farmers that are like, oh, I'm not sure I want to join. I'd say, why wouldn't you join? And they, no one could think of a decent <laughs> excuse. So, <laughs> so I'd sign them up because yeah. there's no commitment. Um, and it's just about having a decent lunch and learning, you know, chatting to your neighbours and hearing from a cool um, speaker. Uh, and then if you're thinking more about wildlife, the wildlife trusts are good, you know, in general, but they've, you know, they've got limited funding too, but they are all, all these guys, all these NGOs, whether it's the Wildlife Trust or the Game Wildlife Conservation Trust or FWAG, who are also brilliant, um, well, you know, FWAG a load of independents as well. So I don't know every FWAG officer in the country, but generally they're great. They're all, you know, NGOs or funded by charity or grants or all, all the rest of it. So they've got limited pots, but every single one of those groups are thinking about the private sector and natural capital as well. Don't know if you saw the NEIRF, NERF funding bid, Natural Environment Investment Readiness Fund. 80% of those bids went to, N- to NGOs, Wildlife Trust, FWAG, the Allerton Project, GWCT. I was really disappointed because we didn't win one. Um, and I called them the environment agency and said, why did you give it all to NGOs when it's about the private sector? <laughs> and we're a private organizer, you know, and they had some good excuses. They said it was basically parallel with the amount of um, applications they'd had. So about 80% of the applications came from those trusts and foundations and stuff. So about 80% of them won, um, which I thought was fair, but still dodgy. Uh, <laughs> um but it's interesting that they're all thinking about net gain and natural capital and all the all these other mechanisms. So, and there are local flag offices, there are local wildlife trusts, there are local clusters. You know that they're across the whole of England. You know, Scotland's different, Wales are different. And at the moment, no England best, but you know there are equivalents elsewhere. Well, hopefully, people can pick up the phone and start dialing. But to just to think about NEP again for for a minute, it was sort of it's quite intriguing that it's gone from conventional arable to the sort of pioneering rewilding project to now starting again into farming yes through a different lens uh you know more livestock focused now i just wondered if there was like a a future vision for nep uh where you could see some crops coming back into the to the rewilding or is this not as far as i'm aware harry i think I think the ground is just so heavy here and I'm sure really, you know, someone like Simon Cowell would be able to do something brilliant here, but Charlie and Izzy, I think have left that, the arable I thought behind or that system behind as far as you have to get them on the podcast one day and ask them. Um, No, I think, I think it will be poultry, beef, dairy, and a market garden will be the food production side of NEP and then you've got the beef and the venison and the pork that comes off the rewilding project anyway so they'll supplement each other but it on the 350 400 acres of farmland that I don't think will will move back into the arable space I think if you see that farm as a, a a fifth or a quarter maybe a fifth of the of the land holding associated with NEP the focus is still very much on process-led biodiversity and and well rewilding. But that said, jo- Charlie sits on the board 
but we're certainly involved with Ingleby Farms' massive farming operation around the world. So it's, it would never, as a as a group or an organisation, NEP has never been anti-farming in under any circumstances. It's just this piece of ground and this pioneering project was best suited to, at the time, financially, partly it was best suited to the kind of rewilding model as it's become. I mean, it is amazing. I mean, I went, um, I don't know, maybe an ecologist would argue with me, but I went maybe not at the most glamorous time. I went in sort of, uh, I think it was March, April, and it was raining a lot and there was quite a lot of mud. But it was, you know, it's fascinating to walk around. It is really like nowhere you sort of been, what I had been so far in terms of uh, landscape and rewilding projects and, you know, walking around and you can hear, it's like I, I likened it a bit to being on um, Jurassic Park. You can sort of hear this grunting and noise, and then suddenly a little <laughs> pig will appear or something. Not going to sort of rip your head yeah. off or anything, but I, uh, I, I'm convinced. I'm convinced I saw a leopard and a kudu last week. <laughs> <laughs> Having flashbacks to uh, <laughs> to Kenya days. I totally know what you mean. Though you, you get a feeling. Uh, I don't know if primal's the right word, but kind of mm. prickling on your neck where you feel really in nature um which is pretty special i think it's part you know that's a lot why a lot of people come here yeah no i think so and i've definitely felt that and i think i was there luckily at the time i think when the storks were sort of having another go at producing more storks and you know the person showing us around was incredibly excited and that was <laughs> you know that really dripped that really sort of fed down to to the group i was with for, you know for sure everyone was suddenly sort of yeah. peering around bushes and you know, running from bush to bush, trying to see what was around it. And, you know, I actually, t- I took a group out last Saturday. I don't know where you were based, but the rain that came down Saturday afternoon last weekend, yeah. we had something like 50 mil in the afternoon or something. <laughs> uh, I took a group out on safari that, that day, um, covering for a, uh, a safari guide with COVID symptoms. So I was roped in and we were so wet and the group had come from Hackney and they were just the best sports. So just at, we had the best time. We saw rutting red deer. We saw yeah. fallow deer. We saw pigs. We saw cattle. We saw ponies. We didn't see any birds or any butterflies. It was a complete washout. But uh, yeah, it was something about kind of a wet and wild September or like when you came in April mm-hmm. day that can still, in the British context, still be quite fun. Yeah. <laughs> exactly we're used to the weather yeah but what are, you know what, what do you see then we've talked about this sort of biodiversity net gain the need for a credit or or carbon credits to extend to cover a wider range of of uh of services but you know where are the real future opportunities for uh people in in the wider industry you know where should they look to be focusing um, to make make sure they're going to be on top of this uh, and maximise their, their you know their farms basically. I saw I was trying I was just trying to get work out if you were asking me from the perspective of the investor or the person delivering the public goods or the market innovators or because yeah at the moment we see climate change and biodiversity crisis as separate beasts um, and that's where I guess the and there's so many trendy slogans or not trendy, but kind of, you know, nature-based solutions. That's where that whole concept enters where you can go, okay, well, we can deliver on flooding and climate change at the same time as delivering on biodiversity in there. Obviously mm-hmm. they're obviously really exciting and kind of, they're just hard, again, hard to measure and hard to prove everything you're doing is doing what it's saying it's doing. But in terms of natural capital, I do a presentation on natural capital and our kind of landowner workshops here. And when the regenerative farm was, you know, an idea, Jason, the estate manager, asked me to kind of go, he said, I even find out what natural capital is. And then find out what we've got on the farm. <laughs> and that, that was 18 months ago or a year ago. I was like, okay, that was my mission. And essentially, it came down to how do you measure natural capital? And it kept on coming down to the question of why. Why are you doing it? And if the answer is to capitalize on future payments, that's going to dictate the level of detail you go into measuring everything you've got, whether it's carbon, biodiversity, trees, habitats soils 
um, if it's so you can understand your land a bit better than maybe you'd think at a kind of higher level remote sense, you know, consultancy led kind of snapshot saying you sort of sequester this much per year, given your kind of general soil types. Or in NEP's case, it was about, you know, positioning itself because it's all about getting natural capital ready because the markets don't quite exist. Apart, you know, you're in the market, you want to people are actually pushing a real market to deliver on these things but whilst the markets are still emerging it's about getting ready so in the regen farms case it was about getting ready for payments whether it's biodiversity or carbon informing science becoming kind of a bit of an example site of how you can do a regenerative farm in the southeast and make it profitable and so that meant we've gone into quite a, a lot of detail so we've got suite of soil tests We've had a suite of biodiversity surveys, we're doing some carbon work, we're doing habitat work, and we're doing water work. And there are kind of five key areas to measure. And then, you know, the question is, well, we're not measuring public access, we're not measuring clean air, we're not measuring a whole host of other public goods that may or may not be paid for in the future. But you have to kind of ask yourself, why are you doing it? And what your focus is as a land manager, and then measure those things. So you know, habitats are a pretty good place to start because that's what biodiversity net gain is using. So measuring mm. your habitats, you know, biodiversity surveys is a pretty good place to start because, you know, if there's a biodiversity credit in the, in the future, it'd be good to know what you're talking about. Soil, obviously, everyone listening to this will be thinking about soil anyway, but remarkably in 2005 when the net project started, no one told the boroughs or the advisory board to dig some holes so we don't have a soil baseline at net whereas now wow. if you're starting a project everyone become you think you're completely mad not to do a soil baseline but because the focus was so on above ground biodiversity and i guess fashion but all you know our interest in this area has changed so much in the last 20 years soil has just like grown and grown and grown in importance um, I was actually find that kind of a little fascinating signal of how times have changed in the last two decades that they didn't think to take a soil baseline then. Anyway, I can't remember what your question was originally, but I'm pretty pretty sure I haven't an, I haven't no, answered it. Yeah, you have. It was about it was about where the opportunities lie, and you know, I think what I guess, you've summed up well there is the opportunity lies in whoever the actor or stakeholder is is setting their focus and their target and their goals and then you discover what where your opportunities will be and it's about getting ready at the moment and i th i think on the ground data is in my opinion better than some of the remote surveys you can do mm -hmm. um but those remote surveys can be a very powerful way to help you make decisions on the farm and choose a direction and choose the focus and but they're not actually a tradable thing yet because yeah do you yeah. feel encouraged by the remote sensing the remote oh, there's, oh yeah there's so much there's so much cool stuff i feel like there's a whole world of emerging stuff and because of lockdown everyone's been forced to like stay in their basements on their computers and all the kind of <laughs> super tech wizards have been making technology even better so um yeah i feel encouraged because there's cool stuff coming but i don't know about it all i don't un understand it all but it's only going to get better i think yeah is there a high level of of tech at nep I don't... yeah the great thing about being nep is that lots of people are really interested in working here so we've got lots of cool projects going on actually and doing a lot of work on carbon because the big big data gap on on carbon above ground or certainly around trees is around natural regen and and a wild system like this so just like the soil carbon market is evolving the kind of natural regen thorny scrub scrubby woody biomass market doesn't really is evolving too the data there's just a big missing data gap there's more on soils a lot more now and so what we want to layer our soil recovery from a kind of intensive arable system to basically species rich grasslands wood pasture we want to layer that in with the regenerating scrub and the expanded hedgerows and then think about our ch4 emissions from the livestock we've had in that system mm. during the same period and, and and basically try and answer some of those questions but we've got some quite some quite cool projects that are going to be run here by 
um, Cranfield University and Exeter University as well, um, using Flux Towers and, and Oxford University. Charlie, um, Charlie's daughter Nancy's doing a PhD, uh, the first year of which will be pretty much exclusively on carbon as well. All right. Um, but in terms of other tech, I can't think of all the projects off the top of my head, but um, there are some quite fun things going on at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like an absolute hive. I was, can't believe I said that's a pun, but yeah, <laughs> hive of activity down there. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I was wondering, just to sort of uh, start drawing to a close a little bit, what, um, you know, from your experience, which is, you know, very wide ranging cross continent, cross climates, cross, you know, cross people, um, you know, what are the big three learnings you could perhaps? Uh, pass on to someone who or pass on to people who are listening who are, who are looking to set up these types of projects um that's i wish you'd emailed me that one in advance um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say i would a cliche would say that it's totally possible what you're dreaming of is totally possible um and there's perhaps less risk involved than you might fear there is especially if you're in a in a the farmed environment where the risk is growing due to subsidy changes anyway, it might be less risky moving into a kind of more natural system anyway. I would say that there is hope. That's certainly the message that I carry to all my friends who call me up saying, oh, we're all doomed. Um, if we've read the newspapers and I can't eat anything because it's all immoral, I, <laughs> I, I tend to, to kind of pitch a message of hope because regenerative farming you know, two days of groundswell every year, you, know, you just sleep feeling like life's going to be good again. <laughs> um, but, or two days at nap. If, everyone should do a week where they go to groundswell and nap in the same week, and then they'll set, set them up for the rest of the year to stay positive. Um, so that would be my other message. Come to nap, go to groundswell. And then, yeah, I suppose the other thing is that whilst the funding isn't ready yet, it does feel like it. it I guess this is sort of like my first thing is not so much risk involved. There is risk involved, but it does feel like there's some quite exciting pots of funding on the way. And I would have been very opposed, I think, earlier on in my life to the idea of kind of commodifying nature. But we live in a, in a capitalist kind of semi-free market system where money talks. So if if we're going to be in that system which we are because that's what we're in um then we better kind of join it and make it work for nature as well so it does feel exciting as well as kind of ethically complex it, it does feel like I change can, is coming i can appreciate that uh had some very good points off just off the top of your head without any prior notice <laughs> Uh, but yeah but um yeah thank you very much for joining me today it's been fascinating and it's going to be interest, interesting time, as you say, and you know the work that, that we're doing and works like you're, that you're doing there as well as trying to work out how to best translate this into activity points or action points for people to to help transition and help fund this transition as well. And, you know, I have been scribbling away, and what I've taken three good points I've taken from here is you know work out what your focus is, and then you'll understand what the opportunities are get ready you see a lot of redness <laughs> going on and connectivity and I, you know not just meaning connectivity in terms of of nature but you know connectivity with your local farming groups or your mm. local neighbors and that will bring around the connectivity in nature as well but if, um, if you could send me those three points i'll add them to my next presentation <laughs> I do. Well, as long as it's not with the slide with boris on i don't know yeah, he's off don't worry uh, <laughs> uh, but i'm um, thank you so much for your time i think people are going to find that you know a very fascinating listen because the wealth of experience that net brings and uh with the great work you guys are doing there i think people are very very interested to hear about it well i've really enjoyed speaking to you harry thanks a lot thank you so much for joining me today for the regen agri podcast to learn more on what we've talked about in this episode please find the links in the show notes if you'd like to know more about how the regen agri initiative can help you on your regenerative journey through advisory services, monitoring of on-farm data, regenerative certification, or carbon verifications, please visit regenagri.org.
There, you can also check out our case studies and articles and gain access to our digital hub for free insight and advice. Alternatively, follow us on Twitter at regenagri underscore CU or search for regenagri on LinkedIn. Join us again next month. And in the meantime, you can subscribe, rate and review us from the Apple platform or find us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.